Hello, and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for COPIC, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Joining me to talk on the topic of heads, hearts, bellies, and bugs, the big ones, is Dr. Dennis Boyle. Dr. Boyle is a rheumatologist and patient safety consultant for Copic. Dr. Boyle, welcome. Thanks for having me. And so before we talk about this topic, which you know quite a bit about, tell me a little bit about your medical background. I know you've been a practicing rheumatologist for some time and an academician. And tell me a little bit about the work you like to do. So I had the chance to do lots of different careers. I was actually in private practice for 20 years, uh, and then recently I've been in academic medicine. What I love is the variety of what I do, and uh, I get to teach quite a bit and love it. And working at Copic along with you has been one of the great joys in my professional life. So. Well, that's very thoughtful, and, and it sounds like you still enjoy being a physician. Is that correct? I love being a doc. Yeah, recently retired from half-time practice, but uh, still guest attending and can't quite uh, give it up completely. Love it. So. And you do quite a bit of teaching, both the medical students, residents, as well as practicing physicians, and that must be a, a, a nice adjunct to seeing patients. I love it. I love it. Well, so you've been at Copic for some time, and we both know this is a this is a key topic, but for our audience members, maybe you could give them a little bit of a background. Why we think that these diagnostic categories are so important for them to know about. So a, a big area, first of all, what we're talking about is um, lawsuits in really the, uh, the, the general medicine category. So for family docs, internists, and uh, emergency physicians. So the, uh, the, the surgical specialties have different risk, although certainly uh, the di- diagnosis is one of them. Uh, and the big thing we see for a primary care physician or an emergency physician is uh, a failure to diagnose. That tends to be about 80% of uh, the lawsuits that we see against those physicians. So it would be fair to say these are some of the things that get physicians sued more often than many other things. Yes. I mean, that's it. So it's much rarer to be a procedural error if you're an internist or a uh, medication error. It really tends to be in, in missing the diagnosis. And I can say in, in, in my practice, I still actively, actively see patients. I saw almost 30 primary care patients yesterday. And knowing this information, knowing what gets doctors sued, I think actually makes me a better physician because I pay a little bit more attention when patients present with these symptoms. And I, I know that when we go out and give talks, uh, physicians will often come up to me afterwards, and maybe you've had this experience as well, when they'll say, gosh, I just I had an intuition when somebody had this chest pain, which seemed like reflux, and I went ahead and did the workup and wound up catching uh, coronary syndrome. So this is the bread and butter of what we, of what we see and do, both as practicing physicians and also as risk managers. So let's, let's jump right into it. And the first area I'm going to talk about and ask you for some insights on is the so-called category of heads. And heads really is acute neurologic events, acute neurologic symptoms. 
And some of the areas, of course, are, are strokes, space occupying, spinal cord lesions, encephalitis, meningitis. And these can lead to catastrophic neurologic outcomes. But early on, they look like everything else. A person with benign positional vertigo can look like somebody who's having a posterior cir- circulation stroke and vice versa. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a case that we have in our, our Copic files. All of these cases have been de-identified, but these are real cases where an 82-year-old patient came into a primary care physician's office complaining of weakness and dizziness. Not much of an exam was done. No posterior circulation uh, exam was done. And before I go a little bit further, why don't you maybe educate our audience on the posterior circulation exam versus what's often done for a neuro exam? So uh, what we see, and we might even see it in your, uh, your form that you fill out, or it might be part of your uh, saved words that are uh, put into to the, uh, uh, the chart, uh, we really see motor sensory uh, exam, and we also see uh, the Glasgow Coma Score. Uh, and that is not the complete neuro exam. That is an exam that really addresses anterior circulation. Interestingly, though, strokes and anterior circulation injuries or illnesses are not where we see all these events. These, uh, what we tend to see is more of these posterior circulation or large, large blood vessel injuries, things like that. And we often don't see a documentation of a posterior circulation exam, cerebellar exam, Romberg signs, uh, cranial nerve exam, things like that. And I'm, honestly, not every physician does them all the time in the, in the right in, in a situation where they should be done. And someone like this does need a posterior circulation exam. Yeah, so when someone walks in and they have facial droop and they're dragging their leg, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to, to leap to a neurologic cause. But as you're saying, uh, sometimes you have to do these posterior exams. And certainly, since I've been giving this lecture my neuro exams are, are much better than they used to be. Although my brother, who is a neurologist, tells me I'm still nowhere. He, he still uh, shames you on that. So there, you know, I have to say there's just a sidebar is there's a, a, a place called Stanford 25. It's 25 exam um, suggestions uh, from Stanford. It's free on the web. Uh, it's a wonderful site. Uh, Abraham Vergesi, uh, uh, an author and a dean at Stanford um, is is sort of the the guy who have puts this together and they have really interesting and good summaries of how to do some of this the posterior circulation uh, exam it's an important part of their stanford 25 and it's quick uh, it's a nice easy way to brush up on what the posterior exam involves and what you do on this patient here it, it sounds like uh, yeah, since this is coping, that there's something bad going to be happening. It's not just a disease with this guy. No, un- unfortunately not. This particular patient was diagnosed with benign positional vertigo and given meclizine without any really good return instructions, without any really good return precautions, and unfortunately came to the emergency room a day and a half later with a massive posterior circulation stroke. And one of the allegations in this case was uh, failure to do a appropriate and thorough exam and failure to have appropriate uh, return precautions. And we can defend as insurance companies and as practicing physicians, we know 
that sometimes even the best doctors can miss things. But if you don't document your thought process and if you don't do what would be considered the appropriate exam, it's pretty hard uh, to defend that care if it comes to a lawsuit. Yes, and I, I remember this case, and it was, it was hard to defend. So you're really suggesting, though, in folks who come in with this kind of symptomatology, a thorough exam, a good neurologic exam, uh, one that your brother wouldn't scold you about. Without a doubt, as well as appropriate return precautions and if symptoms worsen, uh, to come in right away. And one of the advantages I have in having a regular clinic is I can see people back the next day and a return visit is a very, very powerful tool in your diagnostic armamentarium because things can evolve over time. And it also sounds like you have a neurologist on on your speed dial, so that that, that, that probably doesn't hurt, right? I, I guess that, that would come in handy in primary care. With Without a doubt. We I, should suggest that for everyone, actually. I, so. I'm going to give his number at the end of this talk, and everybody feel free to use that liberally. Okay. But I, I think the overall thing is, and it's interesting with this, is this is, the, this is the one that has esoteric lesions in it, and we do see lawsuits around blood vessel tears, posterior events, uh, um, uh, cerebellar lesions. Uh, so it's it's much different than the rest of the stuff we're going to be talking about uh, because that tends to be more blocking and tackling kind of things, bread and butter kind of stuff. Yeah, that that's true. And let's let's jump right into the next one, which does have the the absolute block and tackle bread and butter, which is which is under the category of hearts, and that's the acute chest symptoms and the proverbial triple rule out. Which if I've said it once, I've said it ten thousand times to med students and residents. But it's so important to know the big three. So, Dr. Boyle, I'm going to put you on the spot here. The big three things that cause acute chest symptoms, which can make you fall over dead. I think I got it. M-I-P-E in dissection. I think I learned that internship year or somewhere, somewhere around there. So, yes, uh, those are the big three. And it is of note is even in the emergency setting, when someone comes in with chest pain, half the time people leave the emergency room without a specific diagnosis but your job as a physician when you're seeing people with chest symptomatology is to make sure they don't have one of these big three illnesses and this is as we said bread and butter stuff and and without a doubt there are a few important diagnostic tools which are available to you even in the outpatient clinic setting such as myself and that includes EKG and one of our favorite anecdotes is of course checking the outpatient non-stat, check it in two days or three days, see the results on a troponin. So the proverbial question is, when is a troponin ever not stat? Oh, the answer is, <laughs> it's never not. <laughs> no, it, it is. It's always stat. And the same thing uh, with the D-dimer. Um, we've seen the same issue in, in people getting a, a send-out D-dimer and, uh, you know, the next day, when they call the patient, uh, they they can't get hold of the patient because the patient's not answering the phone. Yeah, if, PE, you're, so. if your differential includes something which could make you fall over dead and you did the test to look for that and you wait for two or three days to look at the results, that's pretty hard to defend. If someone has acute coronary syndrome and a high troponin and you don't see it for two days. Yeah. That, that's a key point with everything we're doing here, and that's that um, – these are all illnesses that if you miss them, bad stuff happens quickly. As you said, I'm a rheumatologist, and if I miss your rheumatoid arthritis, you come back in a couple of weeks and say, Doc, I'm still hurting. So you get another shot at it. 
That's not the case with an MI, a PE, or a dissection, is it? Uh, they tend to be uh, that people don't come back in two weeks and complain of the same thing. If you do, you're lucky, but it doesn't happen that way. Yeah, with, without a doubt. And I, and I want our primary care providers who are listening to this to not be too scared of, of missing things. What they need to do is an appropriate and thorough evaluation and document their thought process because I do understand they see large volumes of patients and even the best of doctors can miss things occasionally. But just pausing when someone has chest symptoms and thinking, do I need to do the triple rule out? Probably so. What testing do I need to do? And document your thought process. It's very difficult to defend care when the thought process is not documented. But when it's documented and it's a careful and, and prudent exam and, and careful and appropriate testing, that's much easier to defend. And how about things like GERD and costochondritis? Or do you feel comfortable making those diagnoses in 60-year-old men with as much gray hair as me? Le- less so than I used to since I've been working at Copic. Uh, my, my patients, you know, for sure, 30% of the population at some point is going to have symptoms of GERD. So a history of GERD and subsequent chest pain does not mean you, you fail to do the appropriate uh, triple rule out. Yeah. I agree. So, well, let's move on then to what we call bellies, and that's acute abdominal symptoms. And like our preceding diagnostic categories, the thing about belly symptoms are that someone comes in with symptoms. Now, there are a lot of organs present in the abdomen. And when I work with medical students and residents, and we talk about differential diagnosis, I say, think about all the structures which can cause symptoms in your abdomen. And after about 20 minutes, I have to cut them off. So it is a fairly broad uh, differential diagnosis. But there are a few main things that are mostly seen or that are relatively easy to miss. And why don't you run through some of that major differential diagnosis for us, Dr. Boyle? So I I think the biggest thing we've seen lately has been ischemic colitis. um, And that occurs in elderly folks uh, who have some atherosclerosis perhaps um, the cat scan can be normal in folks like that uh, and uh, that can certainly lead to devastating consequences appendicitis is always mentioned here uh, but we don't see as many appendix misses as we used to uh, the imaging is better these days um, uh, certainly perforation abscesses of the of the colon are important to be thinking of and then finally, torsion of the testicle, which is, a, um, is actually is something that occurs uh, frequently and is missed a, a number of times. And I use torsion as a, as a case when I go out and give this talk. And one of the cases that we use, there was an 11-year-old boy who had severe abdominal pain, was evaluated by a primary care provider. This case happened to be a woman. And the patient said, I don't have any pain. And rather than doing the full exam, the, the physician did not do a testicular exam, and it wound up that the boy did have, did have torsion. And so a, a key factor to keep in mind is the patient mindset. And there are many, many young boys out there who are terrified of dropping their pants for an exam, and probably even more so when a female comes in the room. So the the, the pearl is if you have a young boy with abdominal pain and their symptoms suddenly go away when you walk in the room, it's torsion until proven otherwise. 
I agree. And, you know, the flip side of that is the elderly gentleman who comes in with abdominal pain. So somebody who's in their 70s and shows up to the emergency room with abdominal pain is really twice as likely to die as someone who shows up 70 years old with chest pain. So abdominal pain really is a high-risk complaint in someone who's over 70, uh, which is what we now consider to be elderly-like, if you will. So, um, And it, it's just something to be taken very seriously. And again, it's in that MIPE dissection thing is it needs to get your hackles up. You need to be thinking about what this could be. And we've seen cases where folks have been complained of or described as having hemorrhoids and things like that or constipation when they really have a more serious abdominal illness. Yeah, without a doubt. And a couple of things also for people who are out there actively practicing, the things that I find valuable are if we have serial vital signs. So if someone has been in the exam room or the office for, for say, 30 minutes or so, get a second set of vital signs and see if it looks worse and really look at them, of course. The other thing which is very valuable for me is the return visit as well as good return precautions. And if I see somebody at the end of the day with abdominal pain, I almost always will have them come back the next morning. So that's a 16-hour delay or so between exams and giving them the caveat that if your symptoms worsen, go to the emergency room right away. Otherwise, I'll, I'll check you back. And often, they'll be a lot better and I'll be thrilled or they'll have other symptoms and I'll do a more advanced workup. And so return to clinic PRN is not what you like to say with your abdominal pain. Is that what I understand? Do I have that right? Absolutely. And giving somebody a a firm instruction and being very concrete with them. I, I used to years ago think more, gosh, I don't want this poor patient to have to come back for another visit or another copay or interrupt their time and their schedule. But really the best care is, I'm the physician. I know how to evaluate you and manage you. I'll see you back quickly tomorrow, make sure everything's okay, and then clear you for going on with your life, or I'll send you off for, for more testing. And I bet you think we should probably document all that too. Is that sort of part of what you're suggesting? Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very important. Well, let's jump on to our, our final uh, broad diagnostic category, which is bugs or acute infections. And The thing about 2019 and soon to be 2020 is people still die of infections. And although there's a perception out there, sometimes among the lay public, that infections aren't that scary or aren't that serious anymore because we have antibiotics and broad-spectrum antibiotics, infections are a very serious illness. And the reason I bring that up is that infections and missed infections Uh, Because it looks like it was obvious, the person had a fever, they complained of symptoms, and you missed it, it can be an area that winds up in lawsuits as well if you you miss an acute infection. And there's some classics, and necrotizing fasciitis is high on that list, as is spinal epidural abscess, your area of expertise, septic joints, and of course meningitis and encephalitis, and pretty much any infection in the abdomen. Those can all be easy to miss early on, but there are a few signs that, that are important that should raise your, uh, your diagnostic skill set up a notch or two, and certainly somebody with a fever, 
certainly somebody who has pain or symptoms out of proportion to what you would expect. Mm -hmm. And our all-time favorite, check the vital signs. There's so much value. Uh, Somebody who doesn't look that bad, but their pulse is 140 or their blood pressure is 90 over 30. That really raises raises alarms. Or somebody with respiratory symptoms and their respiratory rate is is thirty six. Uh, do you ever check respiratory rates in clinic, Dennis? I actually do, but that's because <laughs> I work at Copic now. Uh, yes, we we and uh, we've actually even published on uh, people always having the same respiratory rate. Uh, we have an image of uh, the respiratory rate being sixteen on twenty different patients in the emergency room setting. And that's a setting where they haven't been taking the respiratory rate. It really is helpful, especially in respiratory illness, or it may be, um, you know, th- that the, the patient is really breathing fast and uh, paying attention to it and actually checking the respiratory rate is important. So the importance of vital signs, the importance of you looking at the vital signs is really, that's paramount in these illnesses. Most of the patients and the misses we see, if you look at the chart and you look at the vital signs, you do see a suggestion that there's something significant going on. Yeah, it's, it's, and that makes it harder to defend. So. It, it definitely does. And the other thing that we sometimes see, which is a little unfortunate, is when the blood pressure is 120 over 80 and the pulse is 60 and the respiratory rate is 12 and the temperature is 98.6 and they have acute infection, sometimes it, it, it strains the ability to believe that those are actually the numbers that were checked. Right. <laughs> That's it. And we do see, we've often, we see various out offices where they don't check vital signs or they don't check temperatures. Uh, so a post-op clinic where someone comes in with a swollen knee post-op after a, a joint and replacement and they don't, they don't, we don't document the vital signs. We don't even document the, uh, the temperature. It really, it makes a difference. Obviously, if the temperature is 101, you're you're more likely to do something or start antibiotics or address what's going on. Yeah, vital signs are important. They're very useful diagnostic tools. And also just from a pure medical malpractice side of things, if you don't check vital signs, everybody in the jury knows what vital signs are. They'll say, even my dentist checks my blood pressure. So if you're not doing that and you're missing an infection, it's very difficult to, to paint you as a cautious and prudent healthcare provider. And, and the other thing, and you mentioned it, and it was at the beginning of this section, uh, I, I think the pain out of proportion is really important, especially for, uh, you know, infections in the extremities, things like that. So people uh, with either epidural abscess or uh, infections in the leg or the arm or neck fascia, they really often have pain out of proportion. And when that happens, you need to address it. You need to be aware of what's going on. You need to image it things like that. Without a doubt. I've now, over the course of 24 years of practicing in the clinic, I've had three cases of acute necrotizing fasciitis walk in the door very, very early on in the course. First two, pretty substantial pain. I missed them early on, fortunately picked them up later before it became severe. And the third case, because of the copic training, I had somebody with pain way out of proportion to what I would expect got him straight to the emergency department, got a surgical consult, and I can't say I saved the individual's leg, but I certainly got him in much more quickly than I would have otherwise. And the MRI is the, the, your friend in that situation. When you're not sure what's going on, but the pain's out of proportion, you know, imaging it really can be helpful. So what's the summary here? What are we, what's our take-home messages, Eric? Well, it's that we see so many lawsuits, but 
a, a very significant portion of them fall in these broad diagnostic categories. And knowing that these categories are out there can kind of give you a conceptual framework for thinking, when do I need to maybe step up my game a little bit for doing my history, making sure my vital signs are done, making sure I've documented my thought process and have good follow-up. And I'd like to say every single patient I see over the course of a day, I give my very best, most dialed-in care. But every now and then, this is just me, maybe not anybody else. My mind drifts a little bit during clinic. Maybe every now and then the electronic record frustrates me a little bit. Maybe every now and then I don't do every part of the exam. But when somebody has these categories or has symptoms that make me concerned about, gosh, this could be a more serious illness, I really do try to step up my game and, and, and follow those best care practices. It's better for the patients, and it's better for me from, A, I get better care, and B, I'm less likely to wind up in a lawsuit. And I, I think that's the key, and that's the reason this whole area is important, is that in those 30 people you saw yesterday, 27 of them didn't have heads, hearts, bellies, and bugs. So you know, people with diabetes and people with right shoulder pain and people with the gout are not folks where you know lawsuits are likely. It doesn't mean you, you don't want to take care of them and do the right thing, not miss stuff, but it's in these particular areas which isn't every patient you're seeing, you know, and it does help you focus your attention, I think, as you were just saying. so. Yeah, without a doubt, I think I'm practicing better medicine. Well, Dr. Boyle, thank you for your time. I think this is a, an interesting topic, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Great. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Hi, uh, Eric Zacharias here again. This is a bonus add-on feature to our MedMal 101. I'm going to talk specifically about some information uh, regarding residents and the risk for lawsuits. Now, we often say what gets residents sued, same thing as practicing physicians, what gets nurse practitioners and PAs sued, same thing as practicing physicians. That's all accurate. Uh, but one of the things that's a little bit different for residents is uh, the types of cases that they're more likely to be named in. And first of all, very interestingly, residents are named in up to 30% of all malpractice lawsuits. That's a tremendous amount. And the thing about lawsuits is these things have a long tail. I mean, they last generally three to five years. The median time for residents is four years, but some last even much longer than that. So just imagine starting your career with that hanging over your head for a half decade or longer. Uh, that can be emotionally devastating and it is independently associated with uh, with burnout uh, copic does have and i'll give you more information about this at the end but copic does have a specific resident rotation where we have residents from around the state and surrounding states where we insure residents uh, where we spend some time talking about how to reduce the likelihood of winding up on a lawsuit how to optimize patient safety so first of all, residents, it's far more likely to be procedure-oriented fields that wind up in lawsuits. In fact, it's two-thirds of all named residents. Uh, the, uh, the named event happened during a procedure. And now with procedural medicine, as you might imagine, it's the usual things. It's the patient selection. So was it the appropriate procedure uh, for, for the patient? Uh, was the patient an appropriate candidate 
for this procedure. Uh, informed consent is where we often see uh, breakdowns. Uh, residents, for reasons which aren't wholly clear, tend not to do as good informed consent as attending physicians, and that often is, is brought up during the lawsuits. Now, technical supervision, technical performance uh, definitely comes into play, and one of the things where this winds up being emphasized is if during the, the, during the informed consent, it's not made clear that a resident is going to be participating. Now, that's on you as a resident if you're doing informed consent. It's also on your attending uh, to make sure the supervision is adequate and appropriate. But the number one thing far and away is recognition and rescue of the complications. And that's where we see the vast majority of procedure lawsuits. It's not in the actual resulting in the bad outcome. It's not catching the bad outcome early enough and not acting on it aggressively enough early. And some of the things that contribute to this uh, come down to professionalism, to communication, where in the post-op period of time, uh, the involved resident doesn't come see the patient in person uh, when they've been called multiple times with, uh, with patient complaints or the nurse has reached out to them multiple times. And again, I get it. The residents are tired, they're stressed, they're overworked. But I can tell you that if you're a proceduralist uh, as a resident and you get called regarding a, a patient's symptom, if you go see them, uh, the odds of winding up in a lawsuit are really, really low versus if you, if you don't go see them. You can't really diagnose compartment syndrome uh, over the telephone. So go, go see those patients. Now, in cognitive fields, it's just the same as we talked about at MedMal 101. It's failing to diagnose very severe issues early on in their presentation. And I like to tell when we do these residence rotations, you know, a, a dizzy patient looks like every other dizzy patient until they have a posterior circulation. And reflux looks like reflux until it's an MI. Uh, abdominal pain looks like abdominal pain until it's mistorsion or ischemic bowel. And uh, a sore knee looks like a sore knee until it's a septic joint or necrotizing fasciitis. So within these cognitive fields, it's exactly what Dr. Boyle and I talked about earlier. Just think about your broad differential, document your thought process, close follow-up for these, uh, for patients who have neurologic, cardiovascular, chest symptoms, abdominal pain, and, and infectious symptoms. So document your thought process, and again, see the patients. If you get called uh, by the nursing staff, uh, go see the patients. The other thing that affects both uh, doctors who do procedures and people who are principally in cognitive fields is, uh, is, is missed incidental findings. And what tends to happen is you assume that the next person taking care of the patient will follow up on the issue. And what we say is if you have direct firsthand knowledge of an unanticipated finding, tell the patient what the finding is and the risk and what the follow-up is and document that. That essentially will prevent any physician who misses this uh, downstream from winding up in a lawsuit because that really puts the burden on the patient. And it is reasonable uh, to assume that if a patient is informed of a worrisome issue, told how it could be potentially damaging or harmful, and that's documented, then that is within the standard of care, and that's a burden that the patient should take on. And the other thing, of course, is, and I love this, right, going old school, actually picking up the telephone and, or use your cell phone, 
and call whoever's going to be taking care of the patient and say, hey, Dr. Jones, this is Dr. Zacharias. I was seeing this patient. I was worried about a PE. I got a scan. It was fine, but there was a pulmonary nodule that I wanted you to know about. And again, that way it won't get lost in the shuffle. If I put it in a dictation and send it to the doctor's office, I can tell you from my own personal experience, uh, you know, I have an electronic system. So what does that mean? That means I get about 500 faxes a day uh, of information from non-communicating electronic health systems. I don't see all that information, but if you pick up the phone and call me, that is super, super helpful. So there's a lot more here uh, for, for residents, but the two big points are if you do procedures and there's a call that the patient's having issues or concerns, go see the patient. That's super protective. If you have a patient who has uh, common-looking symptoms in the neurologic chest, uh, infectious abdominal area, document your thought process, have early follow-up, and if you have firsthand knowledge of an unexpected finding, Tell the patient, tell the patient, tell the patient, document it, and ideally call the next person taking care of the patient just to let them know about that. We see so many times incidental findings fall through the cracks. I would love one of my legacies to be at Copic that that doesn't happen to anybody. It happened to me in my practice, and it was a devastating lawsuit I went through about 15 years ago. I don't want anybody else to go through that. So Copic has a resident education program. It beats the ACGME core competencies. We have information about it on our website. We'll have information about it in Copascope. If you have any further questions about it, give us a call. We'd love to uh, help you out. We love working with residents. And thanks for listening to this update on MedMal 101.